years ago, uh, before uh, there was like a massive implosion of his ministry, Mark Driscoll uh, was sadly exercising a significant amount of influence in people's thinking about ministry. Uh, and, and not all of it was bad, uh, but I'm not like the kind of person who loves to find a good stake in the garbage can either, so I'm not thinking it's worth like digging through it all. Right? But one of the things that, that he said, which was meeting with like what I would say is a lot of positive acceptance, is one that, that was, was a, just the opposite in my mind. He would use this illustration of holding your theology in your right hand tightly and holding your philosophy of ministry in your left hand loosely. And so he would talk about that, and, and what he was trying to do in doing that was uh, give a justification for, if I could put it, what I think is the over-contextualization of his ministry, right? By, by being immersed in the culture, he could justify it by sort of a loose hand on things. He's got that held loosely, but he's hanging on tightly to his theology, right? And, and the, the, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that, not the least of which is it actually makes a, di- a division between your theology and your ministry, which is, is absolutely impossible, really. You do ministry from your theology. So, so you can't treat them as compartments that are actually separate from each other. You're, you're, the way you think about the church... The way you think about ministry, that's your theology, is what controls your doing of it. And, and so you, you really can't separate them like that. And, and you don't find, I think, any basis biblically for that, that those two things need to be joined to each other. That, that it really is uh, supposed to be a theology of ministry that drives what we're doing. And, and, and that's why I think often the scripture tells us not only what we're supposed to do, but why we're supposed to do it, right? We, we have to have a belief system below our behaviors so that we're actually acting on the truth of God's word, right? So we, we, we see them as, I think we should see them as uh, joined together in separately and inseparably, and in fact, exercising influence back and forth, right? Because you're you're always wrestling through that. And what I'd like to do this morning is look at a passage of scripture where the Apostle Paul is uh, instructing Timothy regarding his life and ministry, and he doesn't just give responsibilities; he also provides reasons for them. And, and therefore, the justification for why this is so important. It's probably a familiar passage, and, and I hope that won't mean that this is therefore your time to take a nap before the workshops. I'll try to, I'll try to uh, keep us engaged in it, but don't let familiarity blind you to the significance of it. I'm going to read a little bit longer portion, then we're going to zero in for sake of time. So let's start in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 11 and read down through the end of the chapter, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. 
until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbyter, by the elders. Take pains with, all, with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. For our purposes this morning, we're just going to look at verses 14 to 16 uh, and zero in on the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy himself. Verses 11 through 13 are obviously a very important passage about, in a sense, his public ministry and how he's to conduct that. But here he comes and zeroes in on some issues about Timothy's life and ministry that I think would be worthwhile for us. And I think the emphasis, if I could put it this way, falls on the why he should do these things. Right? He clearly tells him what he's to do, but I think the emphasis is on the why because of the way the text is structured. So you can see it pretty clearly at the end of verse 15. So that your progress will be evident at all. So do this so that your progress will be evident at all. Then in the middle of verse 16, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So, so he's explaining why he should do that. And I think in some ways in verse 14, when he gives the statement about the prophetic gift, right? Uh, do not neglect the spiritual gift with, which was in you, which was bestowed on you. So I think he, he takes Timothy back to the initial point of his ministry to try and be the basis for motivating him to obey the, the command not to neglect. So I think, I think the focus is in that. And so, uh, in, a, in essence, what I'm wanting to see in this passage are the motivations for diligent ministry. The motivations for diligent ministry. But we really need to start with that that responsibility, right? The diligent ministry part. So look at the commands here. Uh, you can see them in, in the text, right? Do not neglect in verse 15. In verse uh, 14, in verse 15, he says, take pains with these things. In verse 15 as well, he says, be absorbed in them. In verse 16, he says, persevere, pay close attention to yourself, and then persevere in these things. All right, so those commands all in some way or another, I think, have to do with diligence or focus or resolve or persistence. Right? You cannot fulfill God's purposes through a kind of negligent, distracted, half-hearted, passing interest in this work. He's, he's calling him to make it his preoccupation, his obsession, so to speak. Right, this must be the focal point of your life, Timothy. These things should dominate you, not just be a, a thing along the side that you engage in or one of the things that you do. It is the main thing, and so he's not to neglect it. He's to take pains. He's to be absorbed in it. And you're probably familiar with all of those concepts, so I'm not going to unpack them all 
uh, in terms of, of detailed explanation as much to focus on just the, the central thrust of it and, and to remind us that the kind of ministry with which we've been entrusted is one that demands diligence. It demands focus and attention. It must be the thing, right? I'm, years ago, uh, I was in a, a college homiletics class, and, and I don't know if he was quoting somebody else or not. I think he might have been, but Mark Minnick said, you're a preacher of the word, so mind your business. And it, it sort of stuck, right? I mean, this is what you are, so mind, mind your business. Stick to it. You, you, don't, you don't have uh, the freedom to, to uh, treat it as just a, a, a sort of secondary or somewhere down the areas of your life. It is the focal point of, of what you're to be doing. And Paul zeroes in on, in these verses, categories both of godly life and faithful ministry, right? So that's, that's I think, why he says at the, end of verse, uh, at the end of verse 15, so that your progress will be evident to all. He says in 16, pay close attention to yourself. So, so Paul says, listen, in terms of this diligent focus that you are giving, one aspect of it is your own personal life, the godliness of your character. You need to be focused on these things so that your spiritual progress is evident to others. And that would, I think, be echoing the responsibility to be an example of the believers that's mentioned in verse 12, right? So if you're to be an example to the believers in these categories, verse 12, it needs to be such an intense focus in your life that as you're making progress spiritually, others will be able to see it. It'll be evident that you are following Christ. And so his life is supposed to be giving that evidence of growth. He's supposed to pay attention not just to his teaching, verse 16, but to himself. And that echoes and in, in probably uh, in, in interesting ways in which uh, the scriptures fit together. Remember Paul in Acts 20 was speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus and Timothy's back in Ephesus when this letter's being written to him. And, and Paul said to the elders in Acts 20, 28, take heed to yourselves and over all the flock. And a part of the reason he said that was not just because there would be threats from outside, right? Savage wolves. But he said some will rise up from within you teaching perverse things to lead away disciples after themselves. So, so Paul is, is saying to Timothy, there is a kind of attention to your own spiritual well-being that is necessary to be a focal point. I think it's in uh, lectures to my students that Spurgeon has a chapter called The Minister's Self-Watch. And that's, that's this text. Right, that we have a responsibility not just to watch over the souls of those entrusted to us, but we have a responsibility to watch over our own soul, to pay close attention, to be diligent about the state of our own soul so that we might be uh, what God intends shepherds to be, an example to the flock. 
right? So, so, so it, it has a category regarding his personal walk with the Lord, his godly life, but also his faithful ministry, his faithful ministry. And I think that's seen in him referencing his spiritual gift, all right? Verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. So, so I use the word faithful on purpose because of the, the uh, ready biblical connection between gifts and stewardship, all right? First Peter 4.10 as each has received the gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So, so Timothy here being reminded not to neglect his spiritual gift is Paul saying, you have been entrusted with something, you need to be a good steward of it, be faithful in that. And I think sometimes when we think, I mean, obviously there's a lot we could say about this, the gifts and a lot we should say shouldn't be said about the gifts, right? But, but the reality of it is um, that sometimes we think of them almost like a magic charm. You know, here's my, let's just hypothesize for a moment. Here's my gift of teaching. All right? Stretch your imagination out there for a moment. All right. Here's my gift of teaching. God gave it to me, so I've got my gift of teaching, so it just works automatically. Right? It just functions. But, but to think that way is to ignore the language of a text like this or like 2 Timothy 1.6. Right? This text says, do not neglect. Right? Do not neglect. It's possible for you to neglect the gift that God's given you. And 2 Timothy 1 says, stir up the gift of God which is in you. So, so that's why, honestly, a conference like this is a good thing, right? If, you, if, you're a, if you're a pastor teacher, right, I'm assuming you probably think at least, hopefully you are able to teach because that's one of the qualifications. I'm assuming you think that you have some giftedness to teach. So why, why come to a conference if you've got that? Why not to go to a conference in areas where you don't have gifts? Well, the, the issue is because you're not to neglect it. You're supposed to be sharpening it. You're supposed to be paying attention to it so that you are using it faithfully and effectively. That, that we are to grow in the exercise of the giftedness that we have. And so Paul talks to him about that. That's why I think he's supposed to pay close attention to his teaching. Because it's possible that, that by relying on natural ability, by, by trusting in himself, he might actually start to deviate from the kind of ministry that God wants him to have. And Paul clearly is concerned about that. I think the end of verse 14 is clearly suggesting that this is a part of his ministerial responsibility, if I could put it that way. Uh, Obviously, there's debate about verse 14, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by, and I, I think presbytery is a bad translation of it. It should be just the elders, like almost every other time NASB translates that, that same word. For some reason, they decided to transliterate it. Instead of just saying elders, they decided to turn it into the English version. I don't know if there were some Presbyterians lurking in the translation committee uh, for NASB, but, but it's the elders. 
So the question is, uh, on one hand, was this actually the, the, the event of Timothy's, and I'll put in air quotes, ordination, and at that ordination, uh, in connection with some kind of prophetic utterance and the laying of on hands, the gift was imparted. So in some take it that way, and I, I don't think actually that's uh, like an aberrant or heretical kind of a thing, right? So, so it could be that, that in this particular case, it was actually the instrument through which God imparted the gift. I'm inclined to take the position that others take as well, that this was actually the recognition and affirmation of it. That what was happening was the leaders of the congregation, probably I'd take it as, uh, when Paul, Paul said to the church, I want to take Timothy with me, and, and he was commended by his church that, that this is what's happening in Acts 16, but not stated is what happened in Acts 13, when the Spirit said, separate Saul and Barnabas, and the church laid hands on them and sent them out. And that Timothy was being affirmed and appointed for this apostolic assistant ministry as a missionary, and it was the formal recognition by the congregation that he had these gifts. Whether you take either one of those, the point would be, it's clearly a marking off of Timothy for ministerial service in some way. That he was being set apart by the congregation of God's people for the work that he was engaging in. I think it'd be similar to... um, like what Paul says to Archippus and Colossians, fulfill the ministry which you received in the Lord. There's, there's some work of God through the congregation of his people, the proper spiritual leaderships of, the, of those congregations to say, Timothy, we recognize this and, and you are to engage in this work. And so Paul says to him, Timothy, don't neglect that. Don't, don't allow this appointment to ministry to become something that gets pushed to the side, right? Keep it your focus. So so Paul is saying to Timothy, he has responsibilities uh, that, that cluster together to give a very intentional, deliberate, diligent focus on the cultivation of a godly life and character and of a faithful ministry. And on that part of it, uh, I think, I think it, uh, if I could put it this way, it sort of sits right there at the surface. You can see all those commands. And we rightly look at those commands. What I think we also need to do, and perhaps uh, my inclination in this, because most of us probably agree at least about the basic structure of what I just said, is that we need to be reminded of the motivations which he gives below, the reasons for it, so that we're thinking carefully about what we're called to do in our pastoral ministry and even particularly in our preaching as pastors. Because I think that's what this text helps us zero in on. So look at the end of verse 16, because here I think is the ultimate reason why he's saying these things, right? I think all the weight is moving toward 
this statement at the end of verse 16, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So there's the, if I could put it this way, the ultimate reason as in, uh, in this text, right, I'd say in anything, the ultimate reason is for the glory of God. But in terms of this text, the thing he's driving toward is this statement about salvation. He says a couple of things which actually, I think, serve it. And we'll come back to those. All right? And, and what we need to zero in on here, though, is, is that uh, what Paul says here actually sometimes makes people flinch a little bit because of, of at least on a, on a just sort of a simple, direct level, it seems to make Timothy's salvation conditioned on this and the salvation of those who hear him conditioned on it. And that, that makes people antsy at times, right? So they want to sort of tone it down. So what he really means by ensure salvation is you'll ensure the sanctification of yourself and, and his people. And, and there is a sense in which you could, you, could, uh, you could probably make some case for that. <laughs> Obviously, the way I'm stating it, I don't think it's a very convincing one. Uh, I think it is better to understand this as uh, what I would say is sort of a typical New Testament passage about the issue of perseverance. That those who are genuinely trusting in Christ have a persevering attachment to him that, that continues until the culmination of their salvation. And, 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 in fact, if someone abandons that profession, uh, they will not be saved. Now, I would say, and hopefully you would say, because they never were, right? That there, theirs was a, if I use old school kind of language, they were a superficial professor, right? Or they had a spurious faith, wasn't the real thing. It appeared to be. They were like a couple of the seeds and soils. I should say a couple of the soils in the parable of the, the, the soils that gave evidence of appearing to be a genuine conversion but did not produce fruit. And, and so Paul's, I think, writing inside of that, right? The the, the reality of it is we live in a day uh, that has, uh, I think, departed from uh, deeper, more uh, robust and historical understandings of this issue, right? For instance, uh, our doctrinal statement in our church, right, which is roughly based on New Hampshire Confession of Faith, says this, we believe, A, that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. B, that their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. C, that a special providence watches over their welfare. D, and that they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. My guess is there's probably a lot of us in here that have doctrinal statements that say that yet then come to a text like this and get all spooked by it. When in fact, we know 
that theologically the mark of a genuine believer is that they keep on believing. Right? That's why we call them believers rather than believes. Right? It's not just that they believed back there somewhere, but they actually believe. They hold on to Christ because that's what genuine faith does. And somewhere along the way, uh, I'm going to say it because we're a Baptist church and Baptist seminary, right? Somewhere along the way, Baptists began to exchange that kind of robust view of security and assurance and perseverance and exchange it for a sort of sloppy view of security that, that essentially shifted the, the, the whole discussion away from uh, faith in Christ to a kind of a decision. You sealed the deal with Jesus, right? You, you know, signed the gospel track so you're in, or you walked an aisle, or you prayed a prayer, and because you did something, it's good. I mean, I, I probably have said this because it's just like a perpetual burr in my saddle for like 20-some years, but there's a guy in our state who preached that, that getting saved was like getting on an airplane. Once the door's closed, you're going to get where that airplane's going whether you want to or not. Right? So you, you ask Jesus to save you, you got you get welcomed down to the plane, got in your seat, plane takes off, and you go, oh, I don't want to go to heaven. Too bad, plane's going there. Well, I don't believe in Jesus. So what? You prayed the prayer. And that is not even remotely close to what the scriptures teach is genuine faith. Right? And that's why Paul can say to Timothy what he says. So somewhere between what I would say, and this is, I'll apologize to Dr. Compton for the piling up of the alliteration here, all right? But between a, a kind of sloppy and arrogant and antinomian security, right? And over on the other side, the thing that people get worried about, a kind of, of anxious Arminian insecurity, right? There's a new name written down in glory, an erasable bond. Some of you have to be old enough to know what that is, even, right? You know, you can type it on and it disappears, right? Or, you know, I've been saved again and again and again kind of thing over here, right? So we, we, we argue against that, but sometimes people push so hard against that that they come down to a position that basically says you, you can take heaven and skip Jesus, And, and so you have people thinking they're saved who give no evidences of regeneration, right? And over there, perhaps people who are constantly racked by doubt because they're looking to themselves instead of Jesus, right? They're always looking inward to try and tell if they're saved instead of actually looking outward to the work of Christ and resting in him. But those aren't our only options, <laughs> right? There is actually an option that focuses on the nature of genuine faith as a persevering attachment to Christ 
That is, you believe in Christ and you hold fast to the confession of your faith, like the book of Hebrews says. And that's, I think, what Timothy is being urged here, right? Because the, the, the evidence of a sincere and genuine faith will be that it, it continues in the truth of Christ. It, it focuses on what the message has been received. And therefore, uh, Paul's urging Timothy to that. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, so what I would say, just simply, because I think I, it's somewhere over the last 27 years, I probably said this in public somewhere here. But, but what I'd say is it's important for me, at least, to maybe look at this from three different perspectives, Right? The first, when we look at this issue of security and assurance and perseverance, is from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, there is no doubt who is saved and who's not saved, right? The Lord knows his own, the scriptures say. So security, looked at from God's perspective, there's no doubt. Right? It's never an issue. But assurance addresses the question from the person's perspective, right? I mean, assurance is, is my perspective with regard to my own salvation. And the scriptures are clear that that has variations in it, right? First John says, here's how we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Right? So our knowing that we know him is affected to our obedience. If we walk in disobedience, it's going to cause problems in our assurance because we're going to wrestle with, with the question, right? So that, that's the assurance side of it does have an element of subjectivity connected to my own walk and life. In fact, a, a series of things there. But then there's an outsider's perspective, right? I mean, so God knows his own, <laughs> The person should have assurance and if genuinely saved will have some level of assurance because that's the work of God to produce it in them. But the other person looking at the professing believer cannot see his heart. Right? We don't have a Holy Spirit detector we could wave over them that says, oh, this one has the spirit in him or her. What you and I are left to do is to use the scriptures as an evaluator, <laughs> right? And, and so let's say we take a book like 1 John that says, here are the tests of life. Do they believe certain things? Do, do they love certain things and not love other things? Do they give evidence of new life that practices righteousness and cannot habitually practice unrighteousness? Do they confess sin? Right? So John is writing to a group of professing believers, and he's not writing to cause them to doubt. Okay, sometimes we preach First John like he is, but he actually says in chapter 5, what, I've written these so that you might know, <laughs> not I've written these so I can scare you out of it. He writes it so that they will know that they have eternal life because their own assurance is going to be tied to some of that same assessment. But we're out here, and here's the thing that we're doing, at least, and you could 
you, you might disagree with me on this, that's fine. But I don't think it's ever my job to give somebody assurance. That's the Spirit's job. My job is to point them to what the scriptures say about what the marks of real faith are, what the evidences of the new birth are. In other words, I'm supposed to point them toward what perseverance looks like. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you, and, and just start to fill in with things like from 1 John or from uh, Hebrews or, I mean, all over the scriptures, right? That Paul was convinced of the conversion of people that he had been instrumental in because he saw what God was doing in their lives. And when he wanted to warn them he warned them about the differences, right? Don't you know, like 1 Corinthians 6 or, or Galatians 5, he goes 19 to 21, talking about the works of the flesh, and he says, as I warned you, I warn you again that they who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of Christ, right? So he's saying, listen, if the Spirit's in you, there's going to be some differences, right? That's, that's him doing perseverance exhortation, promises and warning. And, and that's what he's saying to Timothy, too. Even though he's confident of Tim, Timothy's salvation, right? He expresses that in 2 Timothy 1. But, but he is never so confident in it that he doesn't, exhort believers to remain steadfast, to, to hold to. And so he talks to Timothy about that in such a way that he wants Timothy to pay close attention, not only to himself, but to his teaching, because that's, that actually is the means by which God accomplishes his saving purposes. Right? He, he knows that there is, in fact, just like he will gather in the elect in Romans 9 through 11, in Romans 10 through the preaching of the gospel. Not apart from it, but through it, Paul's saying to Timothy, the salvation to which you've been called and the completion of which remains out in front of you is not apart from attention to your soul and teaching, but actually through the attention to your soul and teaching. That is the means that God will use. And so that, that means for us that the minister of God's word plays a vital role in the perseverance of God's saints. Right? We are continually holding out the promises of God in Christ before ourselves and our people as the only hope of salvation. Right? Don't we stand in the pulpit and open the word and say, this is the word of the living God, and say effectively right, to them, if you turn from this, there is no hope. I mean, we, we are actually trying to be an exhorter like Peter 
If you can think of John 6, right, and, and Jesus says some hard things, and people who were his disciples began to turn away, and Jesus turns to his, his inner circle there and says, will you go also? And Peter says, what? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? And that's, that's basically our stance Sunday by Sunday, we're saying to people, these are the words of eternal life. You can't turn away from them. You must hold to them. You must believe what Jesus has said here. Because this is his message. Right? And, and we're preaching and proclaiming that. And if... What we're doing as pastors and as preachers is instrumental, right? Not causative, but instrumental to the salvation of their souls. Can you think of any more pressing motivation to do it faithfully? Like we, we say, I mean, we've heard stories, right? We, we take our stand between the living and the dead. Right? We're, we're, we're called on by God to, to faithfully call people to this teaching, this doctrine, so that they might have salvation. And, and our exposition of the scriptures is the exposition of God's word to them. And, and it is his word which brings life, right? That's what James, you're born again through his word. And, and so we need to have that kind of heart about it, right? And so, so we open the scriptures to bring to bear what God's truth is. And, and, and I would say we open it before we ever get in the pulpit, I hope, <laughs> right? Because it's the word which we need. Not just we need to have something to say, which is always true, but it's actually something we need because we too are a pilgrim persevering. And then we're opening it up to share with God's people, the ones who've been entrusted to our care, God's flock entrusted to our care, so that we might shepherd them by the truth, leading them and feeding them. So there's the ultimate. And, and in a sense, it's, I mean, when you, when you think about that, right, that is a sobering thing. And if you, you know, if you've ever had to stand over the casket of someone who's been entrusted to your care, you know the feeling is different when you're sure and when you're not, Right? And, 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 and it's not just a feeling about them, it's a, it's a sense of your own responsibility, right? Because these people have been entrusted to our care to try to shepherd them safely to glory, right? We're watching for their souls, like Hebrews 13, verse 17 says. So it's an ultimate and sobering motivation. But there are two, if I could put it this way, proximate or preceding kinds of reasons that he gives. The first, I think, in verse 14, which we've already circled around a couple times, but I'll just say it this way. 
You were entrusted with a spiritual gift for this purpose. Right? So, so you know what the ultimate end here in terms of you're, you're supposed to be working for the salvation of souls. And then what we need to understand, verse 14, is, is that's why God gave you this gift. That's why you shouldn't neglect it. All right? Your spiritual gift was for the work of God among his people. And, and again, I'm sort of setting this in, inside the context of a, a biblical view of the gifts, which always see them as having an outward focus, right? 1 Corinthians 12 says that the gifts were given for the common good. Or I already quoted 1 Peter 4, that we're to employ it in serving others, right? So Ephesians 4, 16 the, the body of Christ functions according to the proper working of each individual part so that the body may grow. All right, I was not, whatever gifts I may have for pastoral ministry were not for my own benefit. They're actually for the benefit of the body. That's why it says in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave these things to the church. Right? And so... My ministry is, is if, if an outgrowth of gifts given to me is supposed to be used for the good of the body, I was entrusted with it for that reason. Well, that's why I think it's very important for us to understand, I know, and, and I think understand deeply, not just like at a lip service level, that, that, that uh, churches don't exist for pastors. Pastors exist for churches, right? And that's, I'm glad that that's sort of shifted because I'm old enough to, to remember days when, when it was sort of thought the other way around, right? The pastor is God's man, and then he rallies a bunch of people to help him fulfill his vision. And the man of God is, is the center, and everything flows into him. When in fact, pastors are given by Christ to the congregation for the congregation, right? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Is Yes, we exercise leadership. Yes, we're responsible to do so in such a way that the scriptures describe it as very strong, right? Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. So it's not, not in any way trying to minimize that, but, but it, it is, and I think it is legitimately to be described as a use of authority for the benefit of those under it, right? It doesn't flow into us. It's something we've been entrusted with so that we might serve God's people, just like a husband is to love his wife and he does so from a position of leadership and a parent is to care for his children from a position of leadership but but you don't have I mean sometimes it would nice if it worked out that way but you don't have kids so they can you know be your servants hopefully you don't think you got married so your wife could be your servant in that way right so so the point would be you have this gift from Christ, which is supposed to be used for the body in relationship to their ultimate salvation. 
And that's, that needs to control the way we think about it, right? It's a stewardship responsibility entrusted to us. But, and, and this is where I think we should also see, if I could put it this way, I mean, we could, we could, I mean, some of you, right, we're all different. So some of you hear me saying, you know, ensure salvation for yourself and for others, and all of a sudden you start to go into, like, nervous breakdown mode. And you, you mean, like, Eternal destinies are at stake. Ah. But here, here's the point, right? You've been equipped by Christ sufficient to that task. It's not, it's not dependent on you. You must be responsible. That's why you shouldn't neglect. That's why you should take pains, be absorbed in. But it is not dependent on you. It is, in fact, a gift from God, a gracious work of God in you and through you to accomplish this purpose so that we always have to have that kind of humble confidence that Paul has in 2 Corinthians, right? Remember the end of chapter 2, verse 16, he says, who is sufficient for these things? And the implied answer is, not me. But like six, seven verses later, he says, but we don't have any sufficiency of ourselves, but from God who has made us sufficient. And that's what I'd be saying here is, listen, if you, uh, and, and I, obviously I'm, 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 I'm saying all things being equal here, right? That, that you're not uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing, that there was some due diligence by a local congregation as they affirmed your gifts for ministry, that there is evidence, all those things being true, then you have been equipped by God to do this. Right? So it should be sobering, but it should not be crushing. It should cause us to be responsibly committed to the cultivation of our gifts, the, the, the guarding of our soul, our diligence in what we're doing without shifting any confidence to us or ultimate causation to us, right? I mean, we're, we're ultimately opening up a word which is living and powerful. And we are serving a God who, when he says, come, his people come. We're serving the God who, if he began a good work in them, will continue it until the day of Christ. Right? So, so we're not all of a sudden freighted down with anxiety that, that we're the one who's ultimately going to do this what we're doing, though, is stepping up to the plate, so to speak, to say, but I have responsibility here. Right? I have to be responsible in the exercise of my ministry, the care of my soul, because this is God's intention to use this to accomplish this purpose. And so I want to be faithful. A text I often go back to is in Proverbs uh, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Right? So I'm talking here about preparing the horses for the day of battle. Right? We can't 
We can't ever go, hey, whether we win or lose, that's just in God's hands, so que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. No, God expects us to prepare the horses. So I need to, I need to take heed to my soul and to my teaching. I need to not neglect my gift. I need to be absorbed in these things. Right? So, so I have to recognize that God has given this to me for this reason, and I am accountable before him for the proper exercise of that, leaving the outcomes to him. Right? The outcome is in his hand. And as well, I think verse 15 would emphasize as another proximate or uh, intermediate kind of goal is that our example is crucial for this purpose, right? We should not, must not underestimate or undervalue the power of example, whether for good or ill. And I think most of us have seen this in both ways, right? We've probably receive the benefit of a godly example. I was, uh, I was preaching somewhere last week, and, and I, uh, a guy who's you know, maybe 10 years older than me was talking about someone 10 years older than him, and, and he made the comment about how good it is to see people down the path farther than you, faithfully following Christ, finishing well. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, he's looking down there, and I'm looking at you, right? And there's probably someone looking at me, We've all benefited from the power of a godly example. And that's why Paul puts his, his stamp here. Probably many of us have seen the devastating effects of an ungodly one. Right? That, that people's spiritual lives have been greatly harmed because somebody that they should have been able to look up to Right? And, and, and I know we can say, well, they shouldn't look at anybody, but I mean, what, what did Paul just say in this passage, right? Be an example of the believers. Right? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So the idea of modeling the Christian life is an intensely biblical one, and we shouldn't be so pseudo-humble that we say, well, don't look at me. Right? And, and so here's the deal, is we've all seen people who are hurt very badly, potentially sometimes what appears to be on a human horizontal plane, devastated spiritually because of the failure of someone that should have been a godly example to them. Right? I mean, anybody in this room know somebody who will not even listen to the gospel because of the hypocrisy of someone who should have been a spiritual influence in their life? If you recognize that, then you understand why he says in verse 16, you need to do this so that you ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Right? Because if you're careless with your life, Timothy, it might have enormously devastating consequences in those that you're responsible to lead spiritually. So, so our example is, is very important in that regard. And long-term effectiveness often requires a long-term example, and the personal growth is essential to that, right? So, so here's a passage that is intended, I think, to 
to motivate Timothy to the diligence that he's supposed to do. And I think you and I need to be motivated in the same way and remind ourselves in terms of the truths of this text that, that God uses instruments and means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. And a biblically balanced view embraces and acts on that truth. That is, we, we know that ultimately God is the one who saves, but we acknowledge that he uses human instruments to accomplish that purpose. Right? And if we deny that, then we don't have a biblical theology. Right? We're out of balance. Right? You want to keep Romans 9 and 11 and cut 10 out. And, and, and that's not the way we do Scripture. Right? We don't pick and choose what we want. Okay? Some of you might be inclined to chop out 9 and 11, and you need to get them back in there. Right? God is sovereign in this issue, and the sovereign God uses human instruments to accomplish his purposes. And, and, and while that can be a burden on our hearts as we try to shepherd God's people, denying it is not good for them or us. Right? To, to act as if we can just sort of do our thing in the pastorate and what happens in the pew is, yeah, that's just completely up to them. Is to ignore what we're supposed to be and why we're supposed to be it. That's, that's what I'm saying here. Is he's saying, Timothy, don't neglect, take pains, be absorbed, pay attention, persevere in these things because there are souls in the balance. And I gifted you for that purpose. And you're supposed to live a certain kind of life to serve my purpose in that. And, and we, we don't help ourselves or God's people if we try to free ourselves from the inevitable pressure that comes with it. Right? Because you're going to stand up Sunday and engage in a work that has eternal consequences. And to dismiss that to just, well, my job's just sort of prepare a nice, homiletically structured, accurate thing and get up there and just let it go and whatever happens, happens, is to not understand pastoral preaching. Because pastoral preaching always considers the reason why God enjoins us to do it. And we need to have that on our souls so that we are giving the kind of attention to it that we ought. So these are weighty motivations. We're entrusted with God's grace and we are instruments of God's grace. Let's be faithful to that. Let's, let's, not, let's not turn this incredibly important gift and, and work that Christ has put us into, into just another career choice that we can box off into a, a, a comfortable work week and maintain good life-work balance <laughs> because we just treat it like it's anything else. It's not anything else. It's something of enormous 
spiritual importance to the people that God has entrusted to our care. Let that control our perspective so that we are faithful in doing the work that he's called us to so he can accomplish his purposes for his glory. Let's pray together, please. Lord, thank you that you uh, graciously use human instruments to accomplish your eternal purposes. Uh, We are certainly not worthy of that. There's nothing in us to commend us to this kind of responsibility and work, but there is your grace in our lives to enable us to do it, to open up that door, to give us the ability that we need to, life and breath. And so we thank you, Lord. May we be attentive to our own souls. What a shame it is that many, even over the years that we've had this conference, that used to sit with us and rejoice in these truths have turned away from them or failed to finish well. Lord, help us to run well until we see Jesus. May you use this conference to strengthen us and help us and therefore prepare us for the work that you're doing to to call out a people for your name's sake that your son is doing to build his church. And, And may you be praised in all of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.